0: I bet if you were to count up how many times you have heard a sermon on Psalm chapter 23, it would fill more than one hand, specifically if you've been to many funerals. This psalm is one that's used a lot in that case, but we will talk about it from maybe a little different perspective this morning. We've talked about a lot of psalms that have been written by David, like he's been the author And we've looked at lots of historical situations that these psalms have referenced. And we've learned a lot about David, but we haven't talked much about his life before he grew up and became king of Israel. So let's kind of press the rewind button on David's life this morning and go back to his childhood for just a minute. So way back in 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel demanded a king. You might be familiar with the story. They, They wanted to be given a king, and so Samuel was getting old. His sons were not walking in his ways, and the people insisted that he choose a king to rule over them despite his cautions against it. So Saul was a handsome young man. The Bible says that he was basically a head taller than everybody else, and he seemed like he was the right guy for the job. So he got it. The problem was, The sin that was in Saul's heart that easily entangles all of us, it easily entangled him. He didn't measure up to be fit to be God's king of God's people. And so God sent Samuel to find a new king. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where he sends Samuel to Jesse's family. Where did Jesse and his family live? Bethlehem. Jesse and his family lived in Bethlehem. Samuel was sent there. Jesse had seven sons that he brought before Samuel, and God said, no, 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 no. He said no to all seven of them. And so Samuel says, Jesse, do you have any more, any more boys? He says, well, I've got one. He's out tending to the sheep. You know the story. So they go and get him, and he was brought before Samuel. Samuel blesses him. And David and his brothers probably thought there was some kind of mistake, but God was clear. You can read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He was saying that in reference to David as well. God looks on the heart. Don't worry about the outward. I look inward. So not long after all of that happened, Saul was in need of someone to soothe his troubled spirits and Somebody said, hey, I know David plays the harp. So they brought him in, and it worked for a while. His playing soothed Saul, and he became kind of elevated and even became one of Saul's armor bearers. The next step you all are familiar with, they're fighting the Philistines, and Goliath is there. And you know the story. No one wanted to face him. David comes as this precocious young man, and he says, this guy is talking bad about God, and no one's going to do anything? I'll do something then. And you know the story. He goes up against him, and he defeats Goliath. And two things immediately happened right after that that you might have forgotten. First, Saul's very own son, Jonathan, and David become kindred spirits, as close as you can be without being blood. Even despite multiple threats from his father, Jonathan was loyal to David throughout his life. Second thing that happened was David's fame and bravery spread like wildfire among the nation. People started writing songs about how much braver David was than Saul, and you can imagine what effect this had on the king. He did not like it. He did not like David any longer. Fast forward, and David is installed as the king. He became king at 30 years of age, and he led the nation of Israel for 40 years through what a lot of people call kind of like the golden age of Israelite history, even though as we've studied in previous psalms, it had a lot of hardships in David's life that he had to go through. Remember, some of them were psalms of lament that we've studied. Before he was ever even considered for kingship or before he slayed the giant, he was a shepherd. Right When Samuel came to find him, where was he? He was out in the fields. Now, you, you may have heard this before, but that was not a coveted job, believe it or not. But he knew a thing or two about leading sheep, what skills might be needed for leading them, and that translated to leading God's people. Listen, Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71. Asaph is writing this, and he says, He, meaning God, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So God specifically chose him part of because of his shepherding background. Now, knowing this, we might naturally read Psalm 23 from David's perspective as a shepherd, because he was a shepherd. But I don't think the text allows us to really read it that way. I think the text makes us, or to use The words of Psalm 23 leads us to read it another way from the perspective of a sheep. And we can read and listen to Psalm 23 together. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see ourselves for who we, re- we really are today, but to see you as who you really are, the shepherd, the great, the true shepherd. Thank you for loving your sheep. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. That song is by a group named The Corner Room Music. If you're interested in finding more out, he has a whole... Actually, two whole albums uh, straight from the Psalms, which would be appropriate to put on your playlist at this point, if you haven't already. Hopefully, as we're listening to that, as we're reading the word, we're seeing this not from the perspective of a shepherd, as maybe we've seen it before, but from the perspective as a sheep. Look at what David says right off the bat. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the shepherd. So while David knew a lot about shepherding, that's not the correlation he was making here. He, he was not the shepherd. God was. As I mentioned this earlier, how many times have we needed comfort and turned to this Psalm? I don't know at what point in David's life he wrote this. If, if he was a young man tending sheep or if he was an older guy who had kind of gone through a lot of hard heartache and experiences where this made a lot of sense at that point. But it's a wonderful Psalm of Thanksgiving that captures a lot of human emotions that we can identify with. And that's why it's so precious to so many of us. And he starts off in verse one just by saying, I'm not going to want anything. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I shall not want. So as David was sitting there, wherever he was on a throne, in a chair, on a grassy knoll, watching sheep, I don't know, but wherever he was, he's sitting there thinking and reflecting on his relationship with God. And he's saying, God, you are the shepherd. And if God is the shepherd, what did that make David? The sheep. Now, God being the shepherd wasn't abnormal. Like, this was a typical correlation drawn in Middle Eastern culture, especially at that time. So, the term shepherd can be used in a much broader sense than just a person who cares for physical sheep. It was used to describe leadership in either an individual or a group, kings even in general were kind of thought of as shepherds leading people. Moses himself draws this very application out with God in Genesis chapter 49 verse 24. He refers to the Lord as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So this idea of God being the shepherd is not new to David. It would have been familiar, but it might be a little bit surprising When you consider the perception of shepherds at the time, it wasn't very good. Shepherds were generally looked down upon. As I said, the the role of shepherding in a family was not the coveted role. That was usually given to the youngest boy to go out and do, as we saw the case in Jesse's family with David. It was surprising that the shepherds who were tending their sheep were some of the first ones who were told about the birth of Christ. It was not a very respected position at the time. So David's picture of the Lord as a shepherd, while it isn't uncommon, it might have been a little bit alarming for some people to read as an equation to God. The Lord is my shepherd. Now you might have noticed that the word, I've used it a couple times this way, the word shepherd can be used as a noun as well as a verb. So what does a shepherd do? A shepherd shepherds. That's sort of weird to say, but that's what he does. So it should come as no surprise, and I think actually as a comfort to know that God has chosen to shepherd His people. He's chosen that. He's He's told this to Israel all through the Old Testament. You are Mine, and He's chosen to shepherd them. And think of just the wonderful sort of absurdity of that idea. The God of all, King of the universe, has stooped down to speak, take special care of you and of me, a sheep, David could have used the title of deliverer, rock, refuge, fortress, and we saw last week that he does that. He uses those terms, but in Psalm 23, he doesn't. He uses the term shepherd because a shepherd is different. A shepherd lives with the sheep, and he does everything for them. He guides the flock. He protects the flock. He takes care of the flock. He's not some hireling. Jesus talked about this in John. He said he's not some hireling who runs off at the first sight of danger. He's the shepherd who sticks in there. He has a personal investment in his sheep. So you you probably know this from reading Scripture and especially books like the book of Job. Flocks were equivalent to wealth in that time. The more animals you had, the more livestock that belonged to you, the wealthier you were. And sheep were a big part of that equation. Sheep generally weren't wandering around wild. Because what happens to a sheep that wanders off pretty quickly? It gets attacked. They're fairly defenseless. They get picked off pretty quick. They are owned creatures. Someone cares for those sheep. They were special. And oftentimes they were worth a lot of money to be sold or bought. So I'll say it again. A shepherd has a personal investment in his sheep, so f- for David to be confident enough to say, "The Lord is my shepherd," is really a, a great treasure, not just to David, I don't think, but to you and me, because we can say the same thing today. He's my shepherd. He watches over me. He cares for me. Now, I don't. I don't want to turn this psalm into some like humanistic, self-absorbed, man-centered love fest. It's not all about me and my today. I do want us, though, to see the true shepherd like David did, his shepherd. So he's my shepherd. David found comfort in that. He found security in the thought that God cared for him like a shepherd cares for his sheep, and I hope that we will, too. Now, notice something with me here. David doesn't seem to resist the idea of being a sheep. Now, that may not seem groundbreaking, but we've all heard the stories of how sheep are not the brightest creatures They are prone to wander oftentimes towards places that they can hurt themselves or can be hurt or they can be separate from the protection and care of the shepherd. And David, as the sheep, seems to have embraced this idea. It's obvious that he felt like he needed a shepherd. He took great comfort from this concept. But that's not always how we respond to this idea, is it? If I told you that you were sheep, you may not think that that's a great thing, especially in today's culture. But if I told you that you were as smart as a sheep, you'd certainly be upset with me. We resist the idea that we are prone to foolishness, that we are easily distracted, or that we are oftentimes, by our own choices, headed towards danger. We don't like that idea. It goes against our self-sufficient, self-indulgent concept of what this life is about. Charles Spurgeon said that before a person can truly say, the Lord is my shepherd... They have to first think of themselves as being the sheep. Here's what he says. He cannot know, talking about people, he cannot know that God is a shepherd unless he feels in himself that he has the nature of a sheep. He must relate to a sheep in its foolishness, its dependency, and in the warped nature of its will. Is is that how you think of yourself this morning? So we've spent a lot of time so far on just the first five words of this psalm, but they are incredibly important. To help our understanding of God being the true shepherd and us actually being sheep. But let's continue on. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now this doesn't mean that David doesn't want the shepherd. Okay, when he says I shall not want, he meant that since he had the shepherd, he didn't need anything else. He was lacking nothing. He had no other want. Now this is significant because... All throughout history, Satan has been trying to portray God as some, like, begrudging giver who only provides when he has to. Think about the garden and what he deceived Adam and Eve with. Genesis 3.1, he said, did God actually say? He was getting them to doubt God's goodness, that God wouldn't give them every good thing. These were lies suggesting that God was withholding something good that they needed to be happy And God was keeping it from them. And so he said, did God really say? And he sowed the seed of doubt in their minds. Another pastor I was reading this week pointed out that the phrase, I shall not want here in verse 1, is actually both a declaration, but it's also a decision. And I think that's important. See, when he says, I shall not want, what he means is, all my needs are supplied by the Lord, my shepherd. That's the declaration. All my needs are supplied. All my wants are met. But the decision is when he says, I shall not want, what he means is, I decide to not desire more than what the Lord, my shepherd, gives me. That's the decision that we make day by day. And we say it, we believe it, we make that decision because believing I shall not want flies in the face of almost every media outlet that we have coming at us today. You guys know it's true. Google, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, television, just websites in general. They're they are all, some of them are listening in and they are trying to get you to buy their product. And of course, you won't be happy until you do. They want all of your information so they can sell you stuff better, to make you discontent with what you already have. You want better self-confidence? You want a better self-image? Buy that product. It'll happen. That's what they say. So much of our lives are want-centered. You've probably already received Christmas catalogs in the mail, right? My kids have. It's a me-centered, want-centered society that we live in. And so for David to say, man, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I want. is sometimes seemingly harder for us to say. But in reality, brothers and sisters, friends, it's not. It's the same declaration of what's already true in a decision that we make to not desire more than what the good shepherd gives us. He is sufficient. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-caring. He is enough. Moving on, verses 2, 3, and 4, they, they explain how the good shepherd sustain the sheep, how they can not want. And David uses just really beautiful poetry to do it, to say it. He gives four specific reasons how the shepherd does this. I think there's a theme. There's kind of this connection. Look at uh, those verses with me. The emphasis here is, I think, on the rest that the shepherd provides for his sheep. There's four things. It says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. It says that he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then fourthly, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Those are the things that David says allows him to not So green pastures, quiet waters, restoring the soul, paths of righteousness. There's not a hint of doubt or danger in all of that right there in those verses. Just simple trust in what the shepherd could give him. Just trusting. Shepherd knows where the green pastures are. He knows where to find the still waters. He knows how to restore your soul. He knows where to lead you to righteousness. David trusts his shepherd to sustain him in these ways Do you trust the shepherd to sustain you the same way? Now, you might have missed it in verse 2. Let me go back. There's a hint of a hard truth here. It's not negative. There's not a danger here. But look what he says in verse 2. It says that he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me. The implication, I think, that David is getting at here is that sheep don't always really know what's best for them. They don't always really know what they need. They need the shepherd to lead them where they should go. If God is indeed the true shepherd, and if you are a sheep, do you trust him to lead you where you need to go, even if it's down a path that you wouldn't choose? The sheep didn't really need to know where the green pastures were. They didn't need to know where the cool still waters were. They only needed to know where the shepherd was because he would lead them to those things. They just needed to follow the, the phrase, he restores, has the idea of the rescue of a lost sheep. Restoring my soul, restoring, bringing it back. In fact, the Hebrew word for restore can actually mean to bring to repentance. He restores my soul. The shepherd restores the lost sheep. He leads them in a better way. He knows when his sheep need rest, green pastures, quiet waters, and he knows when his sheep needed to be guided down paths that they might not go themselves. Is the path of righteousness the path that we always choose? Or, or do we choose another way? Maybe an easier path. The shepherd leading the sheep in the way of righteousness had implications for not just the sheep, but the name of the shepherd as well. Because after all, they were being led by the shepherd. He is the one leading. That's why it says, leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It says something about the shepherd where he leads the sheep. Bible commentator Adam Clark said, God's motive of conduct towards the children of men are derived from the perfections and goodness of his own nature. God has a vested interest in where his sheep go because it's a reflection of his leading. Look at verse 4. This shows up and it's kind of this first note of darkness, if you will. David is poetically emphasizing uh, green pastures and still waters and restoration and paths of righteousness. And we just kind of breathe those beautiful images in and we can just kind of like, that's nice. That's good. And yet when following the true shepherd, we may still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice David says, walk through the valley. This dark place, this feeling hemmed in and surrounded, that's not David's final destination. That's not the end of where he's going. He's not going to, he's going through the valley of the shadow of death. So he's not going to go and set up camp there. That's not what he's hoping for. That's not what he's aiming for. But he recognizes that it may be necessary to go through painful things to get to where he needs to go, to where the shepherd is leading But despite the valley, despite the darkness, despite the looming possibility of death, David says that he would not fear, for his shepherd was with him. His rod and his staff, they comfort him. He says, for you are with me. This might be the most comforting phrase in the whole psalm. For you are with me. Being close to the shepherd, it didn't remove the presence of evil, but it certainly took away the fear of evil read another pastor say this this week. He said that paths of righteousness are not always peaceful paths. Notice something else in verse 4, though. When David feels at his most vulnerable, this valley of the shadow of death, it seems like it's closing in. When he's tempted to be the most afraid, his pronouns change. The scariest part of the psalm, David's shepherd isn't just a he anymore in the sense that he's talking about another person. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me, those kinds of things. David starts talking almost like directly to this shepherd, and he says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. I won't fear for those reasons because you are with me. You are here Now, there's some debate on the rod and the staff kind of wording. There's some debate on whether it's talking about two different instruments, a rod and a staff, or whether it's just one instrument used in two different ways. I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of that. I don't know that it really matters, to be perfectly honest. In either case, the same reality kind of rises to the surface that the stick that a shepherd uses has a dual purpose. There's two things that need to happen. And he uses, whether it's one or two things, it's it's to drive away things that would harm the flock, and it's to gently lead them in a better way down a path that they need to go. Would the leading of the sheep sometimes involve a painful redirection? Yeah. If you remember from our study in Ecclesiastes, there was a goad involved sometimes, a sharp pointed stick. Pain was involved. Stubborn creatures who don't know what's really best for them often resist when they don't get their way. I hope you recognize that I'm not just talking about sheep in that statement. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, God's guidance, even sometimes painful guidance, was a comfort to David. And I hope it's a comfort to us. I think of Hebrews chapter 12, about the discipline of the Lord. Who does the Lord discipline? Those he loves, Hebrews twelve eleven, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Is the leading of the true shepherd sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death? Is it necessary for the true shepherd to use sometimes painful things to bring the sheep back to the right path? Does this mean that the sheep are treated unfairly if this happens? Or does this mean that they're loved? Does a shepherd's sometimes painful direction mean that the sheep are actually taken care of or that they're forgotten? Depending on how you look at your current situation, maybe you feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Depending on how you look at that situation, you might be misinterpreting God's hand on your life. You might be seeing and feeling only the stern hand of redirection when what you're going through might actually be God's kindness in your life, bringing you back to the path of righteousness that you need to be on. For David, God's leading even with the rod and the staff, even sometimes painful, they were a comfort to him. I pray that we can trust the true shepherd enough to see it that way in our own lives too. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 23. This carries on the same idea, but David kind of switches to a new analogy. It's no longer God as a shepherd. Now he becomes a host. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The true shepherd, he not only feeds David, but he can protect him. He, he offers him this table, this food, right in the middle of his enemies. Conflict may arise right outside the door, but David knows that he can rest secure in the presence of his benevolent host, his caring host. David is so at peace, in fact, so comforted by this host that he would feel secure and cared for even right in the middle of all of his enemies, all the people that would like to see him fall. And then he goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil. my cup overflows. Now anointing a guest's head with oil was a, a very visual picture of honor. Esteem. You want to honor your guest. You anoint their head with oil. So the host not only presented a filling meal in a perfectly protected place, but he poured out honor on David and his cup overflowed as a result. I think we can kind of identify a little bit with our cup overflowing. I mean, I've heard it said uh, when families all gathered around and there's this sweet spirit and it's like, man, my cup just overflows with this. It's a beautiful thing. Maybe you've just watched an especially moving movie and your heart is stirred and you say, my my cup overflows. Or maybe in a more physical sense, you eat like this incredible meal and you're satisfied. Like, Oh yeah, cup overflows. It's like a a figurative cup that we're talking about. In David's cup, he says, it was overflowing. It wasn't because of the meal. It wasn't because of the protection. It was because the host was there providing those things. And so as a result of the host's special care and honor on him and a result of the good shepherd leading him, David expresses his feelings in the words of verse 6. He says, surely, because of all of these things that he's already discussed, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So more than the green pastures, more than the still waters, more than the protection, even more than the provision, more than the honor of the anointed head, more than all of those things, I think David's greatest comfort and his deepest joy here is that he would dwell in the house of the Lord, not just temporarily, but forever. He wasn't just, he was a guest, don't get me wrong, but he wasn't a temporary guest. He wasn't staying at a hotel in the house of the Lord. That was his permanent home, and he took great comfort from that. He found a lot of joy in the fact that that was going to be where he was forever. David was more than just this casual acquaintance, this passerby that the Lord honored for a moment. He would honor him forever. That would be his dwelling place for all time. And so as we come to the end of the psalm and we we hear this great, glorious statement, what comes to my heart is, Can we all say that same thing? Can we all speak David's words and say that my soul will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Have you been guided by the true shepherd? Have you been welcomed by the loving host? Now, sometimes we're tempted to claim those things and say that's true about us simply because we have made a decision early in our life or because we had some kind of a feeling at some point but are you confident that you would dwell in the house of the Lord forever? You can be because Jesus himself has assured us that a place is being prepared for every one of his guests. Now go back for a moment and look at verse four. One last thing I want to point out as we kind of draw this to a close, we've talked about the idea of the shadow of death. Charles Spurgeon again says death in its substance has actually been removed and only the shadow of it remains. Nobody's afraid of a shadow. For a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway, even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. A shadow isn't something that you can feel or touch, but it's cast by something that you can. The truth is that we only face the shadow of death because Jesus took the full reality of death on himself on the cross. He felt the pain that we deserve. He endured the wrath that was due us. And for all those who believe, Colossians 2 says that God has forgiven their trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against them. And this he has set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So just as Christ was nailed to the cross, so was the sin of every person who believes. But only those who have a relationship with God can truly be comforted by Psalm 23. The good news is, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you can begin that kind of relationship with God today as a true shepherd, as a a real benevolent host in your life, by humbling yourself before him and putting your faith in him and in him alone. And when that's done, we see our sin nailed to the cross with Jesus, and we're welcomed into the dwelling place of the Lord forever is that you today i'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one more song as we reflect on these things and if the spirit would lead you to come up and and pray at the altar or to come up and find me and pray with me or just pray right there in your seat cry out to the lord ask him to be your shepherd to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake and he will do it he will not cast you away let's pray Lord, what a comfort this psalm is to us that we can say we are the sheep and you, O oh Lord, are the real true shepherd. Not only that, Lord, but you are a benevolent host who gives, who pours out blessings so that our cup overflows. Lord, but these things, they aren't real for those who haven't put their faith in Christ. They are still outside of this family, outside of this relationship with the true shepherd and the benevolent host, Lord. And and Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, Jesus isn't just something that we add to our lives to make things work better. No, Lord, we give up our lives for his sake. But in doing so, you tell us you actually find real life. And so, Lord, may we humble ourselves before you today. May we cry out in repentance and faith. Lord, maybe some of us have been wandering away as sheep. And you need to restore us in our soul. Bring your people back. Lord, you have a vested interest in your sheep and you will bring us back even sometimes when it means pain in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't misinterpret the difficult things or the good things in life, but that we would see them for what they are, designed to bring us back to the good shepherd. Lord, thank you that Jesus has removed every record of debt for every person who believes, I pray that many more might believe. In Christ's name we pray, amen.